Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we'll meet a Boston-based trauma therapist who is dealing with the survivors of the October 7th Hamas massacres. We are with you, and that's the most important thing to be, is present. We'll hear why New Jersey First Lady Tammy Murphy is running for U.S. Senate. A lot of people leaned over when the senator was indicted and asked me explicitly if I would consider this. I'll chat with 2009 Formula One world champion driver Jensen Button about a new Hulu documentary series, Brawn. When I got the call from Keanu Reeves and the team, you know, and they wanted to make this documentary, it was docuseries, I got to stop and look back at that year in my life, which was such an important year. And film critic Harlan Jacobson reviews Napoleon. Vanessa Kirby as Josephine has gotten a wild girl down to an art and is a more engaging character than Phoenix's Napoleon. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. Lisa Flegel is a Boston-based trauma therapist who has spent more than 30 years working with Israelis, Palestinians, survivors of the Boston Marathon bombing, and relatives of inner-city homicide victims. She's been in Israel dealing with the survivors of the October 7th Hamas massacres. As WBGO's John Kalish reports, Flegel has also been trying to protect Palestinians and Arabs who are the focus of Israeli rage. Flegel believes that trauma therapists need to be in the trenches, as she puts it, with the people they're working with so that the traumatized person knows that she's in their world and seeing what they see. On October 7th, friends in the Zionist youth movement Hashomer Hatzair asked her to come to Ilat in southern Israel to help evacuees from kibbutzim and small towns. She agreed right away. Our number one job is to bear witness. And by bearing witness, we reflect back to people that this thing that you can't believe happened to you that you feel like nobody could understand because it's unbelievable is believable. And it did happen. And we are with you in that story. You are not alone. You are not isolated. You are not helpless. We are with you. And that's the most important thing to be is present. Soon after she landed in Tel Aviv, Flegel went off to a vigil for the Israeli hostages. When Flegel arrived in a lot, she was assigned to residents of Kibbutz near Oz, which is less than two miles from the Gaza Strip. The kibbutz had 400 residents before October 7th, but more than 100 of them have been taken hostage, murdered, or are missing. The survivors are living at the Red Sea Hotel. A conference room at the hotel was reserved for the week-long Jewish ritual of sitting Shiva. Outside the room, a sign lists times for reciting Kaddish, the Jewish mourner's prayer. Here are some of the traumatized Israelis she encountered. A woman whose brother was killed and whose brother-in-law was taken hostage a boy who told her that all the possessions in his home were taken by the Hamas fighters, and a girl in kindergarten who was acting out by hitting her classmates and breaking things. One day, Flegel approached a boy who was eating breakfast alone. She brought the child a cup of water. And I sat down, and he began to tell me the entire story from when they heard the terrorists outside his house going into the protected room, trying to keep the door locked, 
his father getting shot in the leg as Hamas shot through the door, his dog getting shot, and him talking to his friends on the phone and his friends getting kidnapped while he's talking to them. And the soldiers came and he said to the soldier, can you please go get my dog and find out if my dog is all right? And the soldier went and got his dog and his dog was alive. And they took his dog to the vet. And the whole thing was 20 hours, 20 hours being under siege. Flegel's efforts to alleviate Palestinian and Arab suffering are long and deep. She's been working on a memoir of her career as a trauma therapist. And one chapter recounts a tension-filled encounter with an Israeli soldier as she accompanied Palestinian journalists on a visit to a West Bank settlement. Before Flegel went to a lot, she joined members of a group called Looking the Occupation in the Eye on a visit to Bedouin encampments in the Jordan Valley. She said the encampments had been attacked by Jewish settlers after the war with Hamas broke out. Flegel and her Israeli friends fed pets abandoned by the Bedouins and documented the vandalization of a Bedouin school. The American author Hank Rosenfeld traveled with Flegel to the West Bank during a 2019 visit to Israel. She would take a taxi from Jerusalem to Beit Hanina, that's the Israeli army checkpoint, get out of the taxi, don a head covering, and cross over to the Palestinian side. She met a Palestinian labor leader, Hassan Barghouti, to help Palestinian laborers fill out affidavits claiming wages illegally withheld by their Israeli employers. Palestinians could only come into Israel if they had a permit from their Israeli employer, who would never grant a work permit for an employee just so they can be sued in an Israeli court. She would bring the signed affidavits back to Tel Aviv for the workers' hotline attorney to file a claim on their behalf. When they won compensation, she would bring the money to them, along with Barghouti, so she was about helping Palestinian workers get paid fairly. Flegel has dual citizenship after serving in the Israeli Defense Force at the age of 19. She earned a degree in Hebrew literature in Tel Aviv, where she became close friends with an Israeli Arab woman who studied with her. We formed a bond 40 years ago, and we've been through every war together. We've been through every crisis And I got a message that her son, who's a medical resident, is very depressed because Israelis talk about Arabs as if Arabs are Hamas. They talk about Palestinians as if Palestinians are Hamas. And they say, we've got to wipe them out and they're animals. And he's working in that hospital, listening to people say these things. I want to be with them so they can know. As in every war, we are together and we do not fall prey to this bestiality, this revenge. Revenge isn't a problem-solving strategy. After three weeks in a lot, Lisa Flegel went to stay for a few days at a kibbutz about 30 miles north. For 20 years, she lived at the kibbutz before returning to the U.S. in the late 1990s. Located just 100 yards from the border with Jordan, it had 300 members before October 7th, but 250 of the residents have evacuated, according to Flegel. 
She expects the war with Hamas to be over in six months and says that she'll return to Israel then to do an evaluation of the efforts to deal with traumatized evacuees in a lot. But she's quick to add that once she's back in Boston, if she finds she's, quote, going out of my mind, she may go back to Israel in two weeks. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. New Jersey First Lady Tammy Murphy made it official this week. She has entered the race for the U.S. Senate seat, currently held by senior Senator Bob Menendez. Senator Menendez is facing federal corruption and bribery charges. Tammy Murphy has never served in elected office, but she says she was eventually convinced she was the right person to be the next U.S. Senator in New Jersey. I will go to every single corner of our state. I will make myself available. I have no qualms about taking on the toughest challenges that exist. This is something new to me. Um, It's taken a lot of soul searching, but a lot of people leaned over when the senator was indicted and asked me explicitly if I would consider this. She says the biggest issues her campaign will focus on are affordability, reproductive rights, gun safety, and preserving democracy. The next generation and and many who have just watched the level of discord in Washington, D.C., feel like we are at a really precarious moment. Ben Dworkin, the director of the Rowan University Institute for Public Policy and Citizenship, says Murphy is the presumed frontrunner. She's going to have tremendous support from uh, party leadership that puts you well on your way uh, towards victory. On our latest Ask Governor Murphy call-in show the day after Election Day, Governor Phil Murphy told host Nancy Solomon that the First Lady has been deeply involved in the legislative campaigns. She raised a ton of money for the respective campaign committees. She personally campaigned uh, a lot. She ended her uh, campaigning. uh, She was on the Victory Party Trail with me last night in Monmouth County, but she was in Somerset County yesterday. I, I will say as a general matter, What happened yesterday validates uh, the reason why we're in this line of business. And not just us, it validates the collective us. You can hear the entire Ask Governor Murphy call-in show at WBGO.org. Eminent domain is typically used for roads and electric power lines. But in Cinnaminson, the local government is using the process to build a Chick-fil-A and a small shopping plaza. WBGO's Kenneth Burns reports the battle over land highlights what one lawyer called the bad side of New Jersey's redevelopment law. Tao Lee owns two properties along Route 130 South between Highland Avenue and the shops of Cinnaminson in an area that township officials marked for redevelopment. The buildings are not fancy, but an engineer she hired said they were structurally sound. Lee says her American dream is to replace the buildings with a storefront. So I'm ready to take this down and I want to get the permit so that I can build a a nice, beautiful building and I will do whatever the township requires. But next door to Lee's properties is where Delco Development is planning to build a Chick-fil-A restaurant and a small shopping plaza. Tom Giuliano, CEO of Delco Development, says it's important that his company, which would be part owner of the Chick-fil-A, takes over Lee's properties. It was part of the development and part of what's been planned for years, so it's pretty vital. The fight between Lee and the township began in 2021, when the township initially got a judge to sign off on an eminent domain order, which was later vacated. The township sued Lee again late last year. The judge ruled in the township's favor this past September. Lee has been fighting that decision. She will appear before the appellate division of Superior Court on Wednesday to get the order vacated. 
Traditionally, eminent domain has been used by the government to take privately owned land for a public use. Think roads or infrastructure. Within the last couple of decades, the practice has been used fairly often for the benefit of developers. The key case was the Kelo decision from the United States Supreme Court. And that was a woman in Connecticut where they were going to take her private property and turn it over to a private developer. Timothy Dugan is chairman of the Eminent Domain and Property Valuation Group at the law firm Stark & Stark. He says the rationale behind the 2005 decision was that while the order was not supporting a public use, like for a school or government building, there was a public benefit of some type. The area is a little bit depressed, so it's going to create jobs. It's going to create revenue. In New Jersey, there is a redevelopment law where municipalities can designate an area for redevelopment and use eminent domain to take over properties. Dugan called it a very good law, which can aid in the redevelopment of depressed areas, but it's also abused a lot. For example, You know, I'm a redeveloper, and I go to the mayor, and I say, you know that property over there? Wink, wink. That would be a pretty good piece of property for me. I'd like to do a project on it. And then the township says, oh, okay. Hmm. Hey, planner, go out and see if that meets the criteria. Lo and behold, it meets the criteria. Oh, great. Now I go forward and I do use the power of eminent domain. Lee says holding on to her properties hasn't been easy. Several sentiments and police officers descended on her property last month and told her they were there to serve an eminent domain order. Well, There's court orders of why we're out here, so. The, then can, do you have a court order? Would you? I would like to see the court order. I don't have a court order, ma'am. Okay. Lee well, says I'm it was terrifying. And when I told them that we are still under uh, uh, reconsideration, then they change the subject and say that they come in here for the safety, the inspection, the building. Lee has received dozens of violations for both of her buildings that she has to address by December. She says she never received any violations before. Stuart Platt, the solicitor for Cinnaminson, says the township cannot make any comments because of the pending court case. But he denies that the township was trying to seize the property and said they were unaware of any redevelopment plans Lee has. In Burlington County, I'm Kenneth Burns, WBGO News. One of the craziest and controversial race car seasons ever is the subject of a new four-part documentary series on Hulu, Braun. The Impossible Formula One Story. It's narrated by actor Keanu Reeves. For as long as I can remember, I've had a fascination with racing. And I'm going to share a story that barely seems believable. Jensen Button crosses the line, takes the checkered flag. How do you feel? <laughs> it's really amazing. Only one team in their debut race in the history of the sport have been able to get pole position and then go on to win. This is the story of Braun GP. Why do people say that you were the one-pound Formula One team? I gave a pound to the Honda executive, allow us to buy the team, and kept the team alive. This is the only option we've got on the table. It's this, or the team gets shut down. Can you do this? Yes. Through the insights of legendary manager Ross Braun and revered racing icons like Jensen Button and Rubens Barrichello, all is revealed in this gripping four-part series about Braun GP. 
I spoke recently with the 2009 Formula One world champion and current NASCAR driver Jensen Button about the show. Great to be here and uh, great to be promoting the biggest year of my life, 2009. <laughs> what an emotional ride and roller coaster it was for you at that time in 2009. So watching the finished product of Braun, the impossible Formula One story, what was the first thing that went through your mind when you saw the actual show? Well, the funny thing is, you know, it's, it's 14 years ago now that, uh, that we won the world championship. And so much has happened since then. And time just flies. Time flies by. I've uh, been through quite a lot. Positive, negative. Uh, I've, I've got married. I've had kids, which is awesome. Um, and you just don't stop. So when I got the call from Keanu Reeves and the team, you know, and they wanted to make this documentary. It was docu series. I was so excited. One because it's nice that the whole world can get to see, you know, the the small team fighting against the big teams. But for me personally, on a selfish note, I I got to stop and look back at, at that year in my life, which was such an important year. So, yeah, that's that's the big thing I take away from it. You know, going back to that special year in my life, and uh, I hope that other people really enjoy. Enjoy the season. It's it's an unusual year in the sport. Um, you know, most people that get into the sport at the moment, especially here in the States, that are new fans, will know the you know the Max Verstappen's and the Lewis Hamiltons and the and the and the winning by Mercedes and Red Bull, and they would never dream of a small team fighting against those big teams. It happened though, fourteen years ago. It certainly did. You mentioned Keanu Reeves. He's the narrator, and it takes us through with the interviews. The actor tells one of the greatest sagas in Formula One history through the insights of not only Ross Braun himself and the racing icons like Jensen Button and Rubens Barrichello, all revealed in this gripping four-part series. The best way to become unpopular very quickly is to start winning. We're a team that's come from nowhere. No one expected us to be here. They went too far. There was something against the rules. This was the start of the war. This team that everybody just wanted to survive is killing us. I'm going to win the championship. The knives are out and they were after us. You either push the limit or you're nothing. We push to the limit. People believe in him because he looks innocent. Yet really behind the scenes, a smiling assassin. I think you're all smiling assassins. <laughs> it was a really scary time. This is about survival. Formula One, once it gets into your blood, it'll never let go. Do you feel like Ross Braun was the luckiest guy in the world? Or do you think he was really clever? There's still a lot of controversy over whether or not Braun used the right kind of car in 2009 or not. And without revealing everything, because you can go through everything, tell us about the, the uncertainty of that time for you as well. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, when you're when you're racing, you're fully focused on the driving part of it. But, um, yeah, the the off track stuff and the business side was was a tricky time for the team. You know, we we just about had enough funds to go racing uh, and it got to the point where the car was too quick. Um, so the other teams protested us and it was all about this double diffuser that everyone said, oh, that's why they won the world championship. But there were six cars out of the 22 cars on the grid that had a double diffuser. There were two other teams. And everyone seems to forget that. They just didn't perform as well as us. And the reason was because the car was great. You know, not just the rear diffuser, but 
everything about the car. You know, with Formula One cars, it's all about aerodynamics. And it's how the airflow goes from the front of the car all the way to the back. It doesn't just happen at the back. So um, no, Ross and the team did such a fabulous job with this car. And uh, it's um, when you're winning, you always make enemies. Uh, and, and also, you know, these teams helped us get onto the grid, which was fantastic. And then we started beating them. And I think that uh, they're like, hang on a second. We helped you go racing and you're destroying us. So it upset them a little bit. And when you watch the docuseries, it's great because you still see that feeling they have, you know, of how they lost that championship to a small team like us. Uh, and I love watching those interviews with the likes of the Ferrari boss at the time, Luca de Montezemolo, Bernie Eccleston, who ran the sport. Um, it, it really does mean something hearing their stories and and uh, and their criticism are still, uh, which makes it a really interesting docuseries. It's not all just fluffy and lovely. There's both sides of the story. Yeah, Luca's face throughout the entire documentary is is fabulous. The the chairman of Ferrari, you can see the fire that's still burning inside of him as he challenged what was being done with Braun GP. Uh, it it is a, a terrific series that I think you know Formula One fans are going to really you know lock into, but the average person who doesn't know a lot about Formula One or race car driving in itself can be fascinated because it explains so much the you know the the whole process of the documentary really sets up the anxiety the emotion the you know the debate that was going on and really learning about cars and the teams that are involved i think that's the beauty of this doc don't you yeah there's so much that goes into it the business side of it the sport the emotional side you know for me personally it was very very tough mentally to go through such a high of six race wins and then you put so much pressure on yourself to succeed. And then I dipped off and, and I struggled in that moment in time. Um, and that, that, that sort of family that you need around you to, to survive in sport and to achieve. I think it is, it's got everything, this docuseries. And the story itself is the story. You can't get away from that. But I think what um, Keanu Reeves and his team have added is that everyone's been so open with them. You know, they've done these interviews with individuals that would not normally be so open. But because it's Keanu Reeves asking the question, you kind of feel like you've got to answer the question. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great docuseries. And for me, looking back, very emotional. You know, I still see the highs as amazing. I still the, the lows still hurt me, but it's what makes the story great. Braun, the Impossible Formula One story premieres on Hulu this week. You don't want to miss it. Thanks so much for being here on Sports Gen. Thank you very much. Cheers. Many people have been looking forward to seeing Napoleon in the theaters, but our film critic Harlan Jacobson says you might want to rethink that. Coming from a great career in advertising, Ridley Scott's films are built from succinct, visually fluid narratives, like the shadow of an airplane passing through the Share the Fantasy campaign he did for Chanel No. 5, or the Orwellian 1984 launch of Apple Macintosh. At his best, there's a smooth cinematic intelligence in Scott's visual universe of some 28 films to date. His breakout debut film, The Duelists, a low-budget adaptation of Joseph Conrad's novel, was also set in the Napoleonic era. It was followed by Alien in 1979, Blade Runner in 1982, Thelma and Louise in 91, and then the lesser films, but still engaging G.I. Jane, Black Hawk Down, Gladiator, The Martian in 2015, and the slick but empty House of Gucci two years ago. 
Scott's later male characters have been less interesting much of the time than his early female characters, never more so than his deliverance of David Scarpa's monumentally compressed script of this Napoleon. It doesn't feel compressed. It often drags through two hours and 38 minutes with a subsequent four-hour cut for streaming. Joaquin Phoenix gives us a captain cum emperor who is flat and affectless. The performance suggests Napoleon as an early Asperger's genius, focused like a furnace when it comes to battle and in the thick of it. But stressed emotionally on the battlefield at home, he's a boy man who tantrums at Josephine for failing to produce an heir and then lobs a lamb chop at her down the long table over the heads at a court dinner caught in a two-person food fight. Josephine calls him fat and beats him into submission with the line, you are nothing without me, which may be the one piece of contemporary cultural relevance that Scarpa insisted on to Scott, who is most comfortable when the boys blow themselves up and the horses they rode in on on smoky battlefields. I must warn you, I will not lead a second in command. I will win by fire. I am destined for greatness. I found the crown of France in the gutter and placed it atop my own head. You want to be great? You are nothing without me. Say it. I believe I speak for all of us. We will all sleep again without this vermin. Whose country are we in? The film is at war with itself. Do history or dish? Napoleon and Josephine do battle at home as cases of male arrested development on the one hand and female forbearance and erasure on the other. I'd try to make the case that the Scott Scarpa Napoleon is the costume drama version of the recent past. An emotionally hobbled dictator has an ambitious and self-interested stay-at-home glamour puss wife who rules the palace. Outside it, he summons vast numbers of working and poor men to die for his vision. The difference between then and now is that both Napoleon and Josephine were sentient and competent. After her Princess Margaret in the crown, Vanessa Kirby, as Josephine, has got a wild girl down to an art and is a more engaging character than Phoenix's Napoleon. Her Josephine enters every scene with Napoleon with a recurring incredulous, oh, come on, you really can't be serious, disbelief that goes to the heart of the distaste in the film for all the would-be emperors. Cut to various battlefield tent meetings between Napoleon and his kingly enemies in Austria and Russia, and it's not unlike the current-day MAGA crowd's suspicion that the world is run by chummy, self-serving enemy brats who pause for flutes of champagne while getting the little people out there to die for the empire. There's even talk in the film of eradicating the vermin, the word of the week around here, though in the film, the vector of its direction is different. 
Rupert Everett's nobly pinch-faced Wellington refers to Napoleon as the vermin that must be routed and stamped out, which he does at Waterloo, so that we can all sleep again, presumably under a British boot. The timely appearance of vermin here is an out-of-the-blue piece of marketing luck in a script that started some time back. It is, however, in an artist's job description to be an early warning system. Delegating the home front to Scarpa, Scott comes to Napoleon for the battle sequences, of course, the residue of which days later feel hollow in their long shots. Up close, Scott embellishes the young captain's affectless confidence in his ambush of the British for the port of Toulon. A decade and a half later at Austerlitz, Napoleon drives the Russian and Italian Allied troops out onto a frozen body of water and then unleashes cannon fire that breaks the ice and drowns the army on horseback, a sequence by editor Claire Simpson that whips back and forth from above and below the ice line, streaming clouds of blood in the water that matches the advertising Ridley Scott's captivating visual story sense. Phoenix has made such a specialty out of playing small, desperate characters with a visible wound that the idea of casting him as Napoleon was better than the result. There's no size here. There's little fascination. No rethinking what you thought you knew. No gratitude for a peek inside the empty tent. And no loss at the end of it all. Nothing beats Abel Gantz's five-hour, three-screen, silent 1927 Napoleon I saw at Radio City Music Hall thanks to the restoration of Francis Coppola in 1980, and that Gantz, in part, meant to remind France of its greatness. In English, Scott's Napoleon certainly won't make France great again, nor America, when it hits theaters next week. To quote somebody, I forget who, sad. And I'm Harlan Jacobs. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to WBGO, the world's greatest jazz and blues station, and WBGO.org.